This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Kia ora and welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. This month on Sightlines we're exploring the concept of an artistic life. Violet Fagan is the very embodiment of what it means to be an artist. Throughout her life to date she has explored almost every facet of artistic expression and irritatingly for those who don't have an artistic bone in their body she's been good at all of them. Violet, welcome to Sightlines. Kia ora, thank you Sally. Now I want to start in the present day and work backwards. You're well known in Dunedin for many things including as a nursery woman and a gardener and for your magnificent garden, your berm garden and your plant stall in Alison Crescent and they're all world famous in Dunedin. But the secret is out as the result of some recent publications you are now becoming known coast to coast and nationwide. Tell us about that. You'll be referring to the article in House and Garden magazine that came out in September, which was a nice way to have the garden appreciated a little wider. And then more recently, the secret gardens of Aotearoa, field notes from gardens of New Zealand. So that one has uh, 12 different gardeners, of which I'm one, and devotes a chapter to each garden. So that, that's, that's been another um, way that the garden's been Celebrated. Celebrated. Celebrated and publicised. That book is um, for the benefit of listeners out, available at Whitcalls and possibly other bookstores as well in time for Christmas. In the House and Garden article, your garden is described aptly as a masterclass in colour and fun, an unintended throw, I think, to your wider artistic talents. But while you and your garden are having a bit of a moment currently, in fact, gardening was one of the earliest ways in which you learned to express your creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, and the constant as well throughout all the different shifts and what I've paid attention to, uh, gardening's always been there. Um, so I probably did my first gardening as a preschooler when my grandfather lived with us. And it was that sort of saving saving his back, I suppose, you know, bending and getting the yams, the little treasure from the garden um, and the potatoes. And, and as a child, I can remember my absolute favourite plants were weeds and I think how important it is too knowing about weeds as just about every perennial that I grow that most of us grow and love has started as that vulgaris form so all the little yeah knowing the names of weeds and and identifying them as I think uh, yeah what he taught me so you appreciated their form their color yeah and I think their size because you know when you're tiny you zoom in on everything as well so they were all tiny little scarlet pimpernels and forget-me-nots and and I think your parents lived in a historic home that was also very beautiful and helped hone your appreciation of things things lovely. Yes, absolutely. But to listeners, that could sound like something more polished than it was. It was definitely a, an eccentric home. It was very much a labour of love. Mum, being English, really wanted to create that English-style garden, but we were battling Nor'westers and, you know, really... <laughs> Really the wrong plant in the wrong place, everything that Beth Catto would have said not to do. But yeah, it, yeah, it was. It was a, a beautiful home with a, a good amount of space. And so I think you've said that there was very much also, your parents had grown up through the Depression, and so there was a very much a waste-not-want-not attitude to things, Absolutely. but always with creative flair. Yeah. Did you realise years later when you looked back at some of the work that you yourself had done that that concept of value was a common thread 
that had run through everything that you'd done since? I think it's clear to me now, perhaps at the time it was something that was happening more on a subconscious level and reflected through the materials I was using. Necessity being the mother of invention, I probably was buying things in thrifts that I was able to use and reuse. My practices never really used anything very, what's the word I'm looking for? Nothing new. <laughs> well, nothing new, that's right, and nothing especially expensive either. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Now, I think your your great-grandfather was Louis Fagan, and he was a tailor in Dunedin. That's right. He was uh, known as the Prince of Tailors, and he was, I, I believe there's, there's different opinions around this, whether he was from Poland, Russia, or Lithuania, but he came out, yeah, to New Zealand and moved to Dunedin and opened his tailor's shop. And then after doing that in Dunedin for some years, moved to Miller's Flat, where he opened a general store, which is still there today. It is still there today in some capacity. The original one burnt down in 1939, and by then it was run by my grandfather, Leopold, Lippy Fagan, and then my uncle Ivan. And then it became a, a cafe that sold yeah. some, some um, it's still there. highly unkosher foods. <laughs> So I suppose it's interesting to reflect on the fact that you subsequently, and we're going to talk about this some more soon, also have worked a lot with fabric and with clothing. There's clearly uh, a strong familial bent, if you like, uh, towards the use of materials to um, give creative expression. But you went obviously to school and did you study art at high school? Yeah, that was my absolute favourite subject at school and I'd be there at lunchtime as well. You know, art history and art were definitely the things that made sense. Academically, I switched off, I think, for for all the other subjects except those which I was passionate about, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to the seventh form. Tell us about what happened then. Surprisingly to me, I didn't pass what was then called bursary art. And it really, it did take me by surprise because I'd always done well throughout, um, internally, you know, within that system. But but a good friend of mine who, who did particularly well that year, second top in New Zealand, in fact, my, my friend Saskia Lake, explained to me how the curriculum was really was very clear and somehow my school had sort of missed the boat there there was only two people taking bursary art I might add at school so it probably was it was taught by the English teacher a bit of an add-on so I think that while I was busy drawing things that looked like things or doing something a little bit Edvard Munke, which was my bent at the time, that was not what they were looking for okay. at all. Well. <laughs> so, so it was a real shock and it threw me and it took a long time to, to get over that. And I, I think I thought that it meant that um, that I couldn't operate yes. in that world. Well, yeah. earlier in the year, in fact, we interviewed Geoffrey Harris here on Sightlines and he explained that he too has no formal training in art because his father wouldn't let him uh, mm. go to art school. So you're in good company, Violet, but I yeah, digress. So what did you do? I went to university anyway, for not, very, not for very long, and did a history, um, art history, started a history and art history paper and realised my heart just wasn't in it and pretty soon left but I met a really interesting bunch of women who had just graduated art school and together we started a shop where we sold applied art so um, we were designing clothes and 
it was the 90s, and so it was, there was a bit of a uh, paper mache kind of candelabras and mirrors. And I don't know if um, listeners will know exactly what I mean by that. It was it was very much a 90s sort of thing. That was our shop, and and it was and it was reasonably successful for what it was. And we had events often. We would do shows, ridiculously extravagant shows with music and and theatre. So I was comfortable in that world because. I suppose it was people who had been to art school that were choosing to do something that was less critically engaged than being shown in, in you know museums. Mm. So. I think you've described some of that work whilst it was um, well received by the people that came to your shop and came to your events. I think it was the Mermaid Shop, is that? Yeah, that's yeah, right. In Christchurch. Yeah, yeah. But at and some point you region. stepped away from that more frivolous, I think, approach to art. Tell us what inspired that. So that drive to make meant that I never stopped, that not getting into art school didn't stop me from making. So always making, but still visiting galleries, artist-run spaces and dealer galleries. I was living in Christchurch at the time and wanting to be part of that, but really not feeling that I had the language to be part of the conversation. And my boyfriend at the time, Jonathan Bywater, was extremely encouraging and said, you should just do it. You should do some, you know, more ideas-based work. Just... He somehow trusted that I knew what I was doing. So I did my first show, which was an installation at the High Street Project, an artist-run space. And to my surprise and delight, it was well-received and got a write-up by Justin Patton, who was at the time writing for Art New Zealand and the Christchurch Press. And he gave it a great review, which just was everything I needed, I think, at that point. So that was a springboard for you, really? Absolutely. Yeah, it really was. What can you tell us about that exhibition? It was very diaristic, as was a a kind of a... a, There was definitely a a movement of that sort of thing happening at the time, people like Tracy Emin, who I was really enjoying. I think the title was Girls Don't Surf. Girls Don't Surf, that's right. So it was sort of Timaru upbringing, where in those days girls certainly didn't surf, you know. It 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 was sort of, I guess, a critique of growing up in that sort of parochial world where I was sort of on the outside but of my own choosing perhaps on the outside as someone who probably saw themselves as an artist (laughs) really (laughs) no matter how cringy and from a young age. I think from the information that I've carefully researched about this exhibition <laughs> it featured diary excerpts written onto paper dolls that and there were sort of long glossy ponytails yeah. involved was that emblematic to you of what it meant to be part of the in crowd well um the hair certainly was uh, the, the hair was actually it was synthetic and it was made into ponytails as in ponies strung onto paper clothing paper underwear then there was one room that had just it was completely blacked out with you used to be able to get streamers made from the the empty cutouts of 
milk bottle tops, and this is going to be way outside a lot of people's memory. Even having milk bottles with with the, with the foil top, I and our school them. discos they were they were given to schools and and community was places. Standard to, yes, they were standard <laughs> issue decorations, and so it must have been really near the end of those existing. And I so I had one darkened room that was strung entirely in those, with um, one lonely paper set of underwear with glitter. So it was, it was just brown paper, a lot of brown paper in that show, you know, just kind of pulling that pathos and this one lonely little um, set of underwear dangling from the ceiling with the with the ponytail. So that was one room. Then there was various other similar hair-based pieces and then the paper dolls were life-size. So it was a life-size chain of paper dolls, which I had actually painted excerpts from my diary on and then cut out so you could never really get the full sentences of what was going as so it was you know yep. cut up there but little hints as to what was going on in my mind during those during those years so that was well received um in Christchurch it's in 1995 yes. <laughs> which is um in some respects quite extraordinary you then i think moved to become the exhibitions manager or booking person at the high street project which yeah. i imagine gave you a sense of a little bit more even further credibility in the arts community i think you then moved moved to Auckland. Yes, and then John and I both moved to Auckland. Um, after that, he got got work up there and we were pretty keen to go to go to Auckland anyway. And that led to shows at places like the Test Strip Gallery and I did a few just empty shop exhibitions and things like that. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the prevailing areas of expression that you have uh, had throughout your life has been with clothing. And I think when you got to Auckland, you and Saskia Lake opened a vintage store in St Kevin's Arcade. Has dress always been integral to your expression of your own creativity? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Again, that sort of making your own fun. We grew, we grew up in the countryside just out of town, but... We would, I'd go into town and go op shopping from probably 12, 13 years old and buy up whatever it was that was closest to the thing that I wanted and then chop it or dye it, lots of dye. My dad used to say, getting the cauldron out again. And so I'd always be dyeing things and chopping them up and um, never wanted to wear the same thing twice. Made things for a few of my friends that were a bit wilder than the usual, Timaru attire. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And then once you started <coughs> op shopping for commercial purposes, you were, I think, working in film and sourcing a period dress for feature films and TV yeah. shows? Yes, yeah. I did that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. And what sort of feature films and so, um, TV shows were we talking? This was mainly through uh, Kirsty Cameron, who is an Auckland wardrobe designer. Uh, so there was King Kong, which was a 1920s uh, film. So at the time, that was that's pretty hard stuff to find in New Zealand. So that mm. I was able to help a little bit there. And another one I can think of is um, Sylvia, which was um, a film about Sylvia Plath with Gwyneth Paltrow in it. And that was sort of so we were looking at fifties clothing there. And I worked on set for that one mm. as well. Paid to go thrift shopping. Yeah, doesn't get much yeah, better than no, it that. Is. It's pretty nice. Yeah, pretty nice. <laughs> and I think while you were in Auckland, you had a stint teaching life drawing at the Ponsonby Community College, and a brief stint at AUT at the invitation of Anne Shelton, uh, teaching a paper based on your own practice. What did your own art practice look like around that time, Violet, in Auckland? So still working in installation. I just found that was really what was working for me to have that space to play in and have uh, quite often or just be 
several different vignettes happening within that area. A strong uh, use of drawing because I, I, drawing just came into and sometimes the drawing would be with wool or with whatever onto uh, clothing very often. There was text was a big part of it and text has been sort of picked out by in in whatever materials I've written with brown pantyhose I've written with uh, coins just so I think my handwriting is is definitely for me a um, again again I kind of think all my, my work was probably self-portraiture in a way and then I introduced sound there was often a record I'd get records cut by a man called Peter King who uh, did that in Geraldine so my voice was in them Quite often as well, often with an effects pedal or whatever, just to to throw it, mm. shift it a bit. And then I think in two thousand and one, Justin Patton got in touch with you again. Yeah, yeah, that was that was great because that's what brought me down here to Dunedin. That was the invitation to um, to be the uh, artist in residence, which is a short residency down here. It's a bit of a pot boiler where within a month you get a studio and come up with a concept for a show and. So no stress then. Install. <laughs> Install. <laughs> and you created a show called Help, which has um, a beautiful catalogue, which I have seen, uh, that is a vision, it has to be said, in pantyhose and pearls. And I think bricolage is the term used to describe art of this type, which I had to Google, I have to confess, and it's derived from the French word to tinker, the English equivalent of which approximates to DIY. And in the catalogue, in an essay by Dr Chris McAuliffe, who was the director of the Ian Potter Museum of Art in Melbourne, he says, bricolage refers to activity that transfers an object from one system of use and meaning to another. These often incongruous acts of relocation are characterised as acts of improvisation, a kind of tinkering that disregards the natural or correct meaning of an object. Fagan's practice is one that pieces together found fragments. The original meanings of the objects are not erased, but a dialogue is established between past and present meanings, all of which is sort of quite a long-winded way of describing what it is that you do. <laughs> Tell us, Pilot, about your bricolage help, starting perhaps with what inspired it. Well, I think, just going back to what Chris has said there, I th- uh, materials are loaded with meaning, right, and particularly a lot of the things that I was using being identifiable as feminine a lot of it um so so the concept of the show help help refers to to offer help to give help but it also had the pathos of crying for help uh, it was partly about the women and uh who volunteer in thrift stores and the uh, that kind of invisible part of the economy that is mainly women of a certain age and it was a direct link to many of the materials I've used in my work, which have been gleaned from thrift stores. And uh, it also demonstrated applied arts and craft made by women in domestic spaces that wouldn't usually be necessarily in that context. So they were a few of the things. I mean, I don't want to tie the work down particular they were they were the they were the things that were running in my head mm, when I mm. made it. Did the invisibility also have a representative in the materials that you used? Because I think you've said that some of the things like embroidery, for example, was a very invisible feminine 
pursuit. Yeah, no, sure, sure. Um, bedroom arts, I think, you know, as mm. often yeah. we often call those things. Yeah, and, and actually when you say that, I'm just thinking of the idea that it's an awful notion that people say that after a certain age women become invisible, you know, or yes. feel invisible. So the exhibition, I mean, I've looked at the, again at the brochure and it's hard doing a, a radio show about what is essentially a visual art, but um, it features things like brown pantyhose twisted to form writing on the floor. You had speakers that were recovered in vintage fabric and some of that invisible embroidery. There was a pair of spectacle frames with uh, flower-painted lenses um, and a recording, uh, I think, which you have described as dire of some particularly maudlin organ music. And notwithstanding (laughs) the unlikelihood of that being a successful exhibition somehow based on what I've described, uh, (laughs) nevertheless, it all came together amazingly. Now, you'd had before that nine exhibitions in both Australia and New Zealand, including the Suter Gallery, the Fiat Lux in Auckland, as well as one at the Lord Mori Gallery in LA. Was help something of a turning point for you? I think probably by this time it felt very much what I was doing. It, I felt that that being an artist was probably the most important part of the mm. output that I was that I had for sure mm. yeah so you probably but, then moved to Dunedin um, you managed to persuade your, your partner that Dunedin was the place to be and then having said that art was now the thing that you were going to do uh, one of the first things that you did I think was you joined a band and uh, revisited your uh, career as a singer <laughs> yeah well actually um yeah, the band did start up again. We formed in about 1995, so we'd been going for a while, but just had spread around the country a bit. So that was the first time in a long while that we'd lived in the same place. So the band, I think, was probably most active in the mid-90s, which is when we travelled. Moving forward, you came to Dunedin um, and you then also, as well as the band, you carried on with your art, but you also had um, Modern Miss, which a lot of listeners will remember as being your vintage store in High Street. Uh, You then moved to uh, the lovely space in the quadrant of Moray Place, the Preservation Society, which was also next to the Temple Gallery. And there was some special significance to you of that, I think. Yeah, well, the temple is um, is where I stayed when I was doing my residency here. It's also the old Jewish temple, the old uh, synagogue, which my great-grandfather was uh, one of the donors to to get started to build the synagogue. And actually now I'm I'm the gardener in that in that city garden as well. Wow, so, that's, that's, so, yeah, that's <laughs> a quite a string there. of connections, yes, isn't it? it? Yeah. For the sake of completion, because there is a lot going on for you, Violet, you also have a jewellery line, the Prince of Butchers, and you have more recently uh, done a botanical drawing collaboration with Susie Ripley, who's a Dunedin plants woman, and I'd encourage listeners to check out those gorgeous seed packets. You might have to buy some (laughs) of Susie just so that you can have a look at uh, Violet's fantastic drawings. Which in fact brings us back to the beginning with Violet Fagan, nursery woman, garden designer, artist, bricolagist, installation artist, singer, vintage expert and jeweller. Violet, you are a true polymath and it has been a true pleasure to speak with you on Sightlines today. Thank you. And now here's DPAG Society Council member Ross Curry with an update on the Dunedin art scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, what's on at the dealer galleries around town? Well, at Olga at Mori Place, the Rainer brothers from Whanganui are back with their lowbrow, highbrow ceramics. 
satirical, humorous, and with critical social references. Probably not what your grandparents would have had in their lounge cabinet of treasures or on the mantelpiece, but you can see the connection. And they're joined by Beau Cotton with his quirky, unique jewellery. If you want more fun and surprises, go along to the Brett McDowell Gallery where the talented young Christchurch multimedia artist Henry Turner is having his first in Eden show. This is through to December the 7th. The title, I Have Drunk a Bowl of Foaming Spice, kind of gives the show away. Don't expect something too conventional here. Nothing like a bit of the unexpected at Christmas time. What about the Otago Art Society Gallery in the railway station? Well, it's always a hive of activity at the Otago Art Society. The Affordable Art Exhibition is open from December the 8th. This is where you can treat yourself to a work of art or stock up on Christmas presents. Emma Wells has a show of her jewellery from December the 4th to the 17th. Might be sending some of my family members down there. And last mm. but not least, Ross, what's on at DPEG? Well, quite exciting actually, Sally. At the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, there's a major new exhibition from the permanent collection. Hui Kau, where currents meet, has works from the past and the present. Given the gallery has been continuously adding to the collection since 1884, there's a fascinating range of art, sculpture, drawing and photography to draw from and on show. And it also includes sections from the Kaitahu Artists Collective Paimanu, currently on loan, which brings an indigenous perspective to this show. I was personally pleased to see the major work resurfacing by local Kaitahu artist Simon Khan. It also includes a recent work of geometric abstraction by Imogen Taylor, bought from Society Funds. You might remember that Imogen was the Francis Hodgkins Scholar in 2019. Indeed. On Tuesday, December the 5th at 12.15, you can join a guided tour of Huikau by curators Lucy Hammonds and Lauren Gutzel and learn about the stories and ideas behind this collection. Strongly recommend those guided tours. They're fantastic. And I think DPAG also runs a regular clinic for anyone with questions about artworks from their personal collections. That's right, Sally. If you've got questions on your work of art, bring it along to the art clinic on Thursday, December the 7th. There, the experts can give you some advice on conservation, treatment, or the maker. And don't forget the forthcoming Marilyn Webb retrospective opening December the 8th. Society members will be receiving an invitation to this opening. Thanks, Ross. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again next month for another dive into the visual arts in Dunedin. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. If you'd like to join the Society, you can also find a form on our website or join at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery reception. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer Jonathan Quayoff. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.